Good to be with you this morning. I'm Pastor Marilyn. Uh, I have the great honor of being one of the pastors here on staff at Chapel in the Pines Church. We've been in a sermon series uh, on pride. And I don't know about you, but I think one of the worst things you can ask God for is humility. Right? I mean, that's a scary thing. You know the old saying, careful what you pray for, God might actually give it to you. Right? Pride is a, is a scary thing to deal with because to ask for humility as an antidote to pride is dangerous because we all struggle with pride. Uh, yours truly. So as Pastor Chris and I were talking about this sermon series and I was debating on what passage of scripture to actually cover for this week, for our third week in this series, um, I thought of many lessons, many scriptural passages. There's a lot in God's Word that talks about pride. And then Chris said something so encouraging to me. He said, Marilyn, why don't you talk about how pride works itself in you? Wow! Like, I mean, I could not think of anything more uncomfortable, more transparent, more embarrassing, more humiliating than to talk about how pride works itself out in me, and yet... That is exactly what God would want me to do this morning. And so that's the angle I'm going to come from. I don't know if those of you, many of you will will, uh, relate to how pride works itself out in me, but I think that you will in many ways. Uh, One of the ways that we're not going to really focus on today, but one of the ways that pride works out on me is, you know, I am generally, typically, even if you ask my husband, right. You know, (laughs) I, I just am. You know, and uh, I, I try and be humble about it. I try and be sensitive to the other person. I try and approach them the right way. But really deep inside, I am generally, typically, always right. That's one way pride works in me. Another way pride works out itself in me, I think really the primary way that pride works itself out in me is this sense of over-responsibility. It's a strange way to approach pride, but as I really prayed about it and asked God to show me how pride works itself out in my heart, this sense of over-responsibility became very clear as a pattern in my life, no matter what area of my life that I was thinking of. So, I mean, I think many of us can relate to that. Do I have any uh, overachievers in the house this morning? You don't have to raise your hand. Thank you for being transparent with me, those of you who raised your hand. Do I have any perfectionists in the house this morning? Thank you, in the back, yes. Do I have any workaholics in the house this morning? Yes. Do I have any firstborns who take responsibility for everything, right? So I know that I'm not alone in starting to identify how pride can secretly work itself out in our hearts when we buy into the lie that this all depends on me, right? Hence the title of the sermon today, So You Think It's All About You. Let me flesh this out. So let's talk to parents for a second. So as parents, those of us who struggle with this sense of, we won't call it pride yet, just this over sense of responsibility, okay? But parents who struggle with this, we tend to think that that the human being our child becomes is really all dependent upon us and how we parent, 
right? I mean, everything becomes a teachable moment. My husband say, everything for you, honey, is a teachable moment. Because I feel this sense that everything about our family is going to determine whether our child succeeds in life, whether they end up in therapy or worse yet, prison. Right? I know some of you parents can relate to that over sense of responsibility. And while God does hold us responsible for our parenting, when we take on the full responsibility for the outcome of our parenting, we are actually giving way to pride. Those in the workplace, right? Those of us that think that the success of what we're in charge of is really all up to us. No one can do it like we can. And we really can't count on anyone else to do it but ourselves. And if we're not giving 200%, we're sure it will fail. Now, while God wants us to be good witnesses in the workplace, When we think the success of what we are in charge of is all up to us, we talked a little bit about that last week, that is pride. In other settings, like school, neighborhoods, our church, our community, in any area that we have influence, even the high school students sitting here this morning, any area that you've been given some form of student government, uh, captain of a sports team, any areas of influence, We can often slip into pride by thinking, if only my team would do everything I tell them to, I know we would win. If only I could run our city, our country, until we actually have to, right? If only they would put me in charge of that project, everything would be much better. And of course, the lie is clothed in lots of good intentions. I mean, We want to be A students, we want to be good parents, we want to be hard workers, we want to do well for God, right? But here's the key for us this morning, to really learn to discern, that when we start to actually think that the success of what we do is all up to us and how we do it, we are actually buying into the lie of over-responsibility or the lie of pride. And you may be wondering, well, why it's so, so dangerous to take full responsibility, and that's really the key word here, full. Why is it so dangerous to take this full sense of responsibility for what we've been given? Well, the dangerous thing is that we are actually setting ourselves up to bear more weight than we were created to bear, you see? Which really leads us into what I call our key spiritual truth this morning. And the key spiritual truth is kind of what we, the glasses we want to have on for the rest of the sermon this morning. The big idea for us this morning. God's heart for us this morning. And that is this, that Pride bears a burden too heavy to carry. It's not that God is shaming us in this over sense of responsibility. He's actually trying to free us. He tells us that his yoke is easy and light. And yet we carry a burden that is too heavy for most of us to carry. The truth is, the reality is, we were never created or intended to be self-sufficient. I know, I love the idea of being self-sufficient. It makes me feel like I have arrived. It makes me feel like I have it all together. But actually, we were not created or intended to be self-sufficient. We were actually made to be, one, dependent on God, and two, interdependent with one another. God defines success very differently than we do in our human nature. Look with me on John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, 
and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the image that Jesus is referring to is actually a grape vine. Some of us, as in our American ways, we like to think of almost like we forget that he said a vine and we think of a tree because we hear branches, especially where we live. That's like the first image we think of. But what Jesus, the metaphor is using is, is more of a grape vine or branch. And the truth is that every branch must be connected to the vine in order to succeed, in order to bear fruit. And not only that, here's another truth that we often forget. Some of us know this verse very well. We understand we're to abide and depend on God. We get that part. But every branch is intertwined with each other. And every branch gives life to each branch in different ways. And so there's this interdependency that Jesus is always, also talking about here. We often miss that part in our American individualism, right? But as we get into our biblical text this morning, we have to understand that Israel understood this sense of community, that we don't bear this individual responsibility for things. Israel understood that we are branches on a vine and that we bear this, this community consequence, physical, emotional, spiritual, that we are interdependent of one another and dependent on God. It's a very different way of approaching this sense of responsibility when God puts us in charge of something or gives us areas of influence. God has designed us to be like little children, right? What's the first lesson we, we learn in kindergarten? To play well with others. So to be a functioning human being, the first thing we have to understand is we have to get along with others well. It's this interdependency, not self-sufficiency. Dependent and interdependent. This is really the image of the church that Jesus is talking about. Ephesians 4, 16. For him, the whole body, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Wait, let me just stop there. Every supporting ligament. Not just the pastor and the leadership team or not just the elders. But every supporting ligament holds together the whole body. Every supporting ligament is actually responsible to one another for the health and the condition of the church. Paul says it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Uh, I think of my um, recent injury. Many of you know I injured my back like the day before the move. Very timely, don't you think? So for a long time, I really didn't know what had happened. I finally got the diagnosis that I had injured and actually um, partly severed my SI joint. It's a big Latin word I can't pronounce. Only um, health people know how to pronounce it right. So I'll just say the SI joint. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Somebody said it. Um, but it's, it's basically that the hub in, in the lowest part of your back, that where every ligament and tendon and muscle for your body's activity is connected is really the, one of the worst places to hurt yourself. But you know why? Because it's all interconnected. So this one little tiny little tear, this one little tiny little sever, has caused my whole entire body to be in pain, to be fatigued, to swell, to not, to not be able to function as it normally does. That, that's really what Paul is saying, that, that every ligament is connected in the church. Every person 
is responsible for the well-being of the church. We are one. We are not a bunch of self-sufficient people. So therefore, taking this sense of responsibility for the church is really just, just foolish. We have to work together, being dependent on God, interdependent on one another. So perhaps in this working together, perhaps we are focusing, perhaps we need to shift our focus in the area of responsibility from, from success and results, which I confess, oftentimes I think in that mind frame, because I'm American from the West, and I think, how do we make this successful? Perhaps my paradigm has to shift to how do I become more dependent on God and how do I work better with others? See, maybe that is what we're actually responsible for before the Lord. And I would say that's a total paradigm shift for those of us who think in cause and effect ways. We like to think if we do this, we get success. We do that, it's going to fail. And yet... The Bible is very clear, and we're going to see today that the results are up to the Lord. And that actually what we're responsible for is our level of dependency on God and our ability to be interdependent with one another. It's very different from this message of being self-sufficient and being successful and getting the results that we want or others think we should have. So, one of your first fill-ins Perhaps now we can start to identify pride as, as a form of this, this over-sense of responsibility by filling in the blank, right? Fill in the blank there. When you think you are fully responsible for the well-being of, see, so you, you fill that in. The well-being of, that's what pride is, well-being of our family. When we think we're fully responsible for the well-being of our family, instead of being more dependent on God for that, more interdependent with one another for that. When we think we're fully responsible for our kids' choices, our loved ones' health and safety, our finances, our, our teams at work, even our own health. I, I, I haven't done it recently because I've just been eating bad every day, but typically um, I'm a healthier eater. And typically in, in the past, one of my practices, my spiritual disciplines has been that on Sunday, I just eat whatever I want and I don't exercise. It's not just to give my body a rest. I'm sure there's some physiological um, explanation for that. It's not because of that. It's because I need a day to remind myself that even though I'm disciplined all week long, which I haven't been lately, but even though typically I am, it's, my health is not up to me. I am really not fully responsible for my health. Now, at the same time, God says, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm to take care of it. But the full responsibility does not bear on me. I need to depend on the Lord for my health, right? I need to be more dependent instead of self-sufficient. So, while God calls us to be good stewards, when we take on the full weight of those things, right? When God calls us to be good stewards with the areas of influence, when we take on that full weight, we often can take on more than we can not only carry, as we've seen, but not we take on more than we can control. That's another reason why God does not hold us accountable to be fully responsible for the results or the outcome of things. Look with me on Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Even God does not hold us fully responsible for the outcome or the success of things. There's a level but when we take on that full sense of self-sufficiency and that full sense of, I'm going to make this happen, 
success depends on me, it's actually a form of pride because there are many factors that we cannot understand or control. See? Too many factors are out of our control. And while we don't always understand that and we don't like to admit that, God knows that. See? And so our, our scriptural text this morning is going to be a great example uh, for us. Uh, and, and the person we're going to look at is actually Rehoboam. How many are familiar with Rehoboam's story a little bit in, in the Old Testament? So Rehoboam's story is, comes in a couple different places in the Bible. 1 Kings 12 and 14, 2 Chronicles 10 through 12. You can find it different places, which is usually I like to just read straight out of the Bible, but it's sake of time, it's a, the story's long and it's scattered, so we're just going to look at it in pieces and highlight it on, on the board here for us. But you can certainly look at that, and the, the references are on your notes later this week. So who is Rehoboam? Rehoboam was an Israelite king in the mid-10th 10th century BC. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he took reign. He took reign when Solomon died because he's Solomon's son. Now, the Bible depicts Rehoboam as a vain and foolish man. Let me give you the backstory. So, Jeroboam is Solomon, his father's, one of Solomon's right hand men. And Jeroboam and Solomon get in this scuttle when Solomon's still alive and reigning on the throne, and Jeroboam flees to Egypt and is out of the picture for a while. But when Solomon dies, Jeroboam returns to Israel because Rehoboam is going to be established as the new king. And Jeroboam wants to give him a little piece of wisdom. And he says to Rehoboam, he says, you know, your father, for the sake of his beautiful palace, actually was a little bit hard on the people. He kind of, I would say, even overtaxed them. He worked them too hard, too. And the pressure he put on them for the magnificence of, of your father's palace and court was it's a bit much. And I think you'd find more favor with the people if you actually decrease that pressure. Tax them less. Push them not so hard in the labor force. Well, Rehoboam does seek counsel. We'll give him that. First, he goes to the elders of the court, and the elders tell him, I agree. We all agree. We think you should be a little gentler on the people. We think Solomon, although he was wise, pushed the people a bit hard. So what, I think you'd have great favor as you begin your reign if you were a little softer with them. But Rehoboam doesn't like that answer because that means the magnificence of the court will suffer. Not as much money, not as many workers, not as much gets done. He wants to be successful. He most likely feels the pressure and the burden of Israel succeeding in the world. He's taking all that on itself. It's all up to me for Israel to, for, for, its, for God's glory to shine through Israel in the world. It's all up to me and I got to take that on so I've got to push the people. So he goes to his peers. He needs some support. He goes through his peers and his peers agree with him. Yeah you got to start off strong. If you're going to succeed in this thing and you're going to take full responsibility for the glory of God to be present in Israel and in, in, in your father's court and, and in the palace and in the temple, then you've got to push them hard. In fact, you've got to push them harder than your father did. Sadly, Rehoboam proclaimed this to the people, and I'll just read it to you. We don't have it on the screen. Whereas my father laid upon a heavy yoke, so shall I add tenfold thereto. 
Whereas my father chastised or tortured you with whips, so shall I chastise you with scorpions. For my littlest finger is thicker than my father's loins, and your backs, which bent like reeds at my father's touch, shall break like straws at my own touch. Great guy, huh? Whew. You think you've had some tough bosses and leaders and authority in your life. The Bible summarizes Rehoboam's heart and attitude as this, that he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And the Bible calls it evil. Because he did not focus on dependence on God and interdependence with God's people. See, The result? Jeroboam and the people rebelled. You think? Yeah. I don't think I'd want to follow or support or serve a leader like that. And sometimes as leaders, I think that's how people feel under us. When we take the burden of the full responsibility of the success, the department, whatever it is that we're leading, we take that on ourselves. We tend to be harder on people than we even probably intend or realize. People don't like being under someone like that. It's a burden too heavy for them to carry as well. And so the result of the rebellion is that Two independent kingdoms were formed. So Jeroboam become, reigns in the north, ten tribes in the north, and Rehoboam was king over Judah and Benjamin in the south, and Judah and Benjamin kind of merge as one. So for the first time, it's the end of Israel, the united Israel. For the first time, it's split. It's a big church split. It's a big problem. Now, Rehoboam as we review it, wouldn't humble himself before God. He wouldn't play well with others, and that's pride for sure. But there's more to the story that really I think will encourage us today, especially for those of us who take on more responsibility than we should. And that is, let me give it to you, and it's a fill-in on your, on your notes. FYI, the ultimate cause of the division was Solomon's apostasy. That's strange. The ultimate cause for the division of, king, of, of Israel was Solomon's apostasy. Apostasy is unfaithfulness, disobedience, idolatry. And you say, wait, 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 wait. But it all happened while Rehoboam was reigning as king. And we often blame Rehoboam for the bad decision he made as being fully responsible for the division of Israel. Because we maybe didn't read the couple chapters that came before Rehoboam's story. It seems that way. And, and, and what I'm about to point out, I like for us today, because I think we do the same thing. We often blame ourselves, maybe for failures of things, when there are factors that we don't know or can control. When maybe God has a different purpose in mind than we understand. And instead of opening our hearts to realize we are really not fully responsible for the results and just focusing on being dependent on God and interdependent with one another, we end up with shame and defeat and feeling like a failure. And we, we take all the blame ourselves when there's many more factors going on that we don't understand and that are out of our control. So the Bible does call Rehoboam foolish, prideful, and vain. But the Bible tells us that the wheels were spinning in motion for the division of Israel during Solomon's reign. Solomon was a very wise man. He was, and we know him that way. 
But during the middle of his reign, he began to compromise his faith. He began to disobey God in many ways. His military structure, marrying foreign wives, he turned to idolatry. And, and, and God warned him. He spoke to Solomon. He told him the consequences if he was unfaithful as their king. And we, it's a little bit long, but we have it on the slide for you, and I'll read it out loud. The Lord said to Solomon, As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. In Israel. All of Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land. Oh, let me just stop there for a second. Wait, whose land is it? God's land. A Solomon's, not Rehoboam's. Whose family do we lead? God's family. Which I have given you, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And unfortunately, because of Solomon's disobedience, that's exactly what happened during Rehoboam's reign. It was the beginning, back in Solomon's choices, that was the beginning of the end of Israel. Israel then suffered division, suffered defeat by other countries, and ultimately, diaspora, exile. God's people were scattered. God's temple was destroyed. And it wasn't all because of Rehoboam's foolish pride. It actually goes back to a consequence that God put in order before Rehoboam even took the throne. It was also prophesied to Jeroboam when he was under Solomon. So it's not like God didn't make this clear. Let's look at what God had said to Jeroboam, who on the road met the prophet Ahiah. Now, it's actually the Hebrew is like, I can't do it because I'll spit all over you. Ahiah, something like that. But we'll just say Ahiah with the prophet, okay? So Jeroboam and the prophet are walking on the road back when Jeroboam was under Solomon. And they both have these new cloaks on, these new coats. And they meet together. And the Lord says through the prophet to Jeroboam, he says, the prophet Ahiah had, prophes had prophesied to Jeroboam he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces. He's talking about the coats they had on. He's using it as a metaphor. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe. And the one he's talking about is Judah and Benjamin combined. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me, he goes on to say a little bit later, nevertheless... I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. So the success of Israel was not even in Rehoboam's hands, ever. It's humbling for us, right? We don't know what to do with that. Because we live in America where if we do this, we'll succeed. And if we don't do this, we'll fail. We think that. We think we're so in control. We think we know all the factors. We think we can do it ourselves. And there's so many more things going on behind the scenes that God is in charge of that none of us even have a clue about. 
And this tells us that while Rehoboam was not a simple, innocent bystander, we see that Rehoboam's reign is adversely affected by his father's spiritual failures. And this doesn't relieve Rehoboam of his own lack of dependence on God, his own inability to be interdependent with God's people. But it does show us that God is in control of the results, not us. That's the antidote for us overachievers today. It's the antidote for us perfectionists and workaholics and firstborns is that God is in control, not us. And some of us work so hard and we take so much responsibility only to fail and we don't know what in the world happened and we become very disillusioned with God because he's not doing what we say he should do because of our behavior and our leadership and our wisdom, see. We have to come before God humbly and understand there's so much more going on, bigger than ourselves, than we can know or understand. I love it that later, Rehoboam, after the rebellion, and Jeroboam sets up his reign in the north, northern tribes, Rehoboam establishes his army, and he's, he's about to charge up to the north to take them all back, to unify them. He thinks this is a good thing. No, I am responsible. I've got to keep Israel together. You can see this is my job to keep them together. I'm the king. So he gets his army all together. He's about to attack them, and God stops him. He says, do not attack your relatives. And I love it in 1 Kings 12, 24. He says, this thing has come from me a hard reality for us, but it's a humbling reality when we let God be God and we bow ourselves before him and the results that he wants with whatever he's given us to be in charge of. And I think that all this leads to the so what section. The so what is, so what does this have to do with me right now, in my family, in my workplace, in this church right now? And the first one's this, there is more to what we do than we know. See? Right? That's a given now that we've seen this story. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, the things he chooses to reveal, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. See, from the beginning, God set up that he's only going to tell us what we know in order to be dependent, obedient, interdependent, not necessarily to succeed, at everything he gives us. There's so much more going on that we don't know, but God knows. And this is why the Christian life is not a guarantee for success. The Christian life is a call for humility, dependence. Humility with God, humility with one another. Dependence on God, interdependence with one another. That's really what the Christian life is. The results are his not ours, because there's so much we don't know or can control. And it's, it's important to grasp this, because the problem is, like I said, if we take too much responsibility for things, we own too much shame sometimes. We also take too much credit. We talked about that last week, and we think the success is all about us, and maybe whom, how, how many generations ago God decided he was going to bless this time in history, what we're doing in this church, what we're doing in this country, what we're doing in our schools, and we take it all like it was all about me. It was my program, it was my ministry, it was my leadership, and yet it's God's bigger picture all along, you see. We do this as parents, right? Some of us have really easy kids. I'm jealous because I didn't get one easy one. 
I got two hard kids. We also have this DNA thing going on where we have some emotional disability stuff happening in our family line, a lot of depression, bipolar. And we see this running through our kids a little bit here and there. And it's made it very difficult to, to, to compare ourselves to standards to other parents who maybe weren't given that same DNA, not to mention the spiritual strongholds in our family line because we're first-generational Christians. And the spiritual barriers we're trying to break compared to a family who has five and six and seven generations of Christians, that's very different. And yet as parents, you might take all the credit. Our whole family line are Christians because we do it right. And maybe over here, some of us are like, man, I tried, but I just failed. I don't even know what I did wrong because I did everything they did. And I'm paralyzed by that kind of shame and that kind of sense of failure, right? And, and, and really, it all distracts us from what we are responsible for, see? If I'm so paralyzed by shame or pri- and, and puffed up by pride, then I'm certainly not going to be thinking about how dependent I am on God as a mother, how interdependent I am in the family, or am I just trying to succeed because it's all up to me to do it, see? It's all about repentance, not success or failure which leads to the second so what, and that is this, that there is no such thing as failure in God's kingdom. My friends, that's the good news. If this is all true, and I believe it is, there's no such thing as failure in the kingdom of God, only a lack of dependence and a lack of interdependence with one another. Not failure, see? Only a lack of trust, submission, obedience, and we can always grow in those things. But if the results are God's, there's no such thing as failure for us, no matter God blesses what we're in charge of or not. There's a much bigger plan going on. doesn't mean that we failed. It's a huge lesson for me. There's a life verse, and I'll, I'll share it with you. It's kind of a strange life verse, but it's Proverbs 21:31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I know, it's a strange life verse, right? But I love this verse because this verse was life-changing for me. When I started realizing that I'm not the rider, I'm just the horse. That's all I am. Before I came up this morning, I prayed. I said, Lord, keep me in that place where I remember I'm just the horse, I'm just the horse, I'm just the horse. Because if I come up and think that I'm the rider, it's a lot of responsibility put on my shoulders and I crumble under it. And I have a sense of failure at the end. Because I cannot reach your hearts and change your lives like God can. Because I'm just the horse. (laughs) See? The success of the battle is not on my shoulders. I'm the dumb horse. If the battle loses, I look to the rider. That's your call, not mine. Right? It's just the horse. But I am responsible to know the rider, the master. I am responsible to spend time with him and to hear his voice, and be trained by him, and to know his touch. And then I'm responsible to be led by him any way he wants to go. There's nothing worse than an unruly horse, right? It's dangerous for everybody. It's a great verse to remind us that we need to all let Jesus move from the back of the car to the steering wheel, see? It's the same metaphor, Many of us have let Jesus in our lives. Some of us haven't done that yet and we're still looking at it and and maybe you're ready to just let him in the back of the car and that's kind of your gradual 
progression, but the ideal, the goal is to put him in the steering wheel of your life. Make him the rider, not the horse, right? We get things flip-flop when we feel so overly responsible for things. God, I've got to succeed. I need your blessing. Can you imagine the horse saying that? I need you to work with me. It would be a disaster. It's important to understand this because if we take on all this sense of responsibility, if we forget we're just the horse, the sad part is we will get in God's way. Instead of depending on him, we will get in his way. And instead of being interdependent with one another, we will trample on others. It's not all up to us. And yet God has made it perfectly clear what we are responsible for. In Micah 6.8, the Lord spoke through the prophet and said, This is what I require of you, to do what is right and just, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That's what we're responsible for. Believe, abide, and do it together. Anything more or less is pride. And pride carries a burden too heavy to carry. Amen?